This episode is brought to you by The Growth Strategy Programme, the only online programme for the founders of scaling consumer packaged goods brands that helps you set your business up for the next phase of serious growth. To find out when the next cohort starts, go to fionafitzconsulting.com, then click online courses and register your interest today. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Dr. Wills is a brand of all natural condiments, taking on the big food brands in the ketchup and mayo aisle in stores all across the UK. Driven by their mission to make sauce that makes food better in every way, their vision is to be available everywhere you'd find Heinz and Hellman's. After his night shift, Dr. Will dials into this recording from his on-call room at the hospital and we cover a lot. What it's like to run a food company and be a real doctor, the brand's recent successes on social platforms like TikTok and LinkedIn, why they choose to have a virtual team and their recent crowdfunding that resulted in nearly 800 new investors. Dr. Will Breaky, you're so welcome. Thank you so much for calling us today. You look like you're in the hospital. Yeah, no, I am. I, I've been on call overnight, so I'm still here this morning. Yeah. Unbelievable. And I'm not sure if everybody knows that you are actually a real life doctor, right? What kind of doctor are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm training to be a plastic surgeon at the minute. So I'm just kind of grinding my way through the, the training with the, the end goal of being a cleft lip and palate surgeon, which probably has about three or four more years to go as we'd say back home, fair play to you, really. Kudos, that's amazing. So how does somebody who's training to be a cleft lip and palate surgeon end up starting a food company? Yeah, so a few things fell into place. So first, let's just say, so Dr. Wells, a healthy condiment brand. Um, a few things fell into place all at once. Uh, it was 2015, I was living in Newcastle, as was uh, Josh Rose, who's one of my co-founders. My mother's a nursery teacher and she was telling me a story about some uh, parents saying, how can I get my kids to eat broccoli at the minute? I'm putting Heinz ketchup on it. Um, and I was like, well, that doesn't sound right. I met Josh at a gym, a CrossFit gym we both went to. And he said, you know, I've got this really nice restaurant and we've put loads of effort into making the food as good as we can. And then people just cover it in this really poor quality ketchup and, and it's breaking my chef's heart. So we sort of put our heads together and we said, look, loads of stuff is happening in the grocery world in terms of you know healthier products or just um, giving people alternative options. But the sauce aisle, the condiments aisle, looks the same as it probably did in the 1960s. There's just a wall of, of Heinz or Hellman's. So we thought we'd see it. We saw an opportunity there and dived headfirst into it. And when you talk about Josh, were these friends of yours? Who's your other co-founders? There's three of you. Yeah, so there's three of us. So um, Josh Rose and I started off, um, literally just met Josh in the gym, sort of on the bike next to him, got chatting. And then Liam White is our other co-founder who brought some of the um, the more financial brains to the operation when he left JP Morgan and came to work for us but pretty much at the start, to be honest. So you guys are talking about this idea that there's nothing in the condiments aisle that is healthy or good for you or less bad for you. So what did you do next? So at the time, it was when the sort of deliciously Ella craze was kicking off and she was making everything with dates. And we thought, look, let's just try and try and make some sauce. I, I'm really into cooking. So I just went home, treated it like a science project or like a research project that I would do at work. And I just made as much 
catch up as I could using every recipe I could find on the internet and changing out anything refined or anything that I thought seemed bad for you and making it with natural ingredients. So we just iterated for about 30 to 40 recipes at home in my mum's kitchen. And we moved to Josh's restaurant kitchen to see if we could do it on any type of scale. Realized we had absolutely no idea what we were doing when it came to cooking on an industrial scale. And we found someone who could make it for us. And, and it was a, a really great guy called Andrew who had a farm in Yorkshire where he made his own uh, sort of marmalades and that, those kind of things. And he said, yeah, we'll make some ketchup. So we just started off like that. And we, we went to a market store. We sold ketchup on a bridge in Newcastle on this sort of food market and gradually built up very well-trodden path of you know small independent delis up through Ricardo, getting Selfridges, Harvey Nichols, getting some of those bigger stores on board. And then at the start of the pandemic, Waitrose asked us to fill a gap and then Tesco's did as well. And so then we found ourselves uh, with two national grocery listings uh, and a proper company on our on our hands. And how long did it take you from getting your first bottles in the farmer's market to, I suppose, having your Waitrose listing? So first market stall, I think, was April 16. And then Waitrose listing would have been about the same time in 2020. Okay. And has the range changed much since the beginning? So how many products did you have at the beginning and what do you have now? So ketchup's always been our hero product. We've always, that was the main thing. Um, we both, we, we all loved ketchup. In terms of market size, that, that was the big one we wanted to go after. We always felt that we would need at least three products at the start because it looked better on the shelf. So we felt a bit lonely with just having ketchup. So we started off with ketchup, um, barbecue sauce and, and beetroot ketchup, which sort of was a bit of a funny story to how that came about. But uh, we gradually moved into uh, mayonnaises because uh, they felt like a very obvious choice. And then we moved, uh, we we added in salad dressings as well. So ac- across the board, it's sort of around about t- 10 products. 10 SKUs. Are they all available at which major retailers and where online are they available now? So uh, online through our website, everything's available there. And then Tesco, we've recently launched into big for- volume formats with uh, Squeezy Bottle. So they've got uh, ketchup and barbecue sauce and, and then some of the, the sriracha hot sauce and the dressings. And then Waitrose are more along the dressings and uh, mayonnaises, but also have our ketchup because we want that to be everywhere. Congratulations, guys. So look, talk to us about the consumer need for this product, because obviously it's a real testament. The fact that you are listed in these retailers and the fact that you've got so many SKUs and that you're selling, I believe that your market value sales are between one and two million now, which is fabulous. I'm sure that's happened quite quickly towards the end of your growth story, right? It all starts, all of a sudden starts taking off, doesn't it? But what does that say about the consumer need in the home? and also in food service, for something that is better for you than what the big players have traditionally been offered, been offering us? Yeah, sales doubling year on year, which is great, but definitely skewed more towards the end, which is which is really exciting, good to see. Um, I think in terms of need, you can definitely split those two things out from the sort of um, office-based on-trade side of things to the at-home um, side of things. But I know we sent you some sauce and, and some mayonnaise and, and that went down pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Fabulous. From a consumer need point of view, I think there's far more education now about healthier eating and healthier food. There's a, there's a lot more known about refined sugars and trying to keep everything as, as natural as possible. So parents in particular are much more aware of what they're, what's going into their children's bodies. Um, so there was, we definitely found a need for that. 
in terms of um, the responsibility of these larger grocery stores, you know, they also have a moral and ethical responsibility to be offering healthier products at prices that people, that everyone can afford, uh, which is difficult, but we're trying. And I think they saw us as a, a company that could offer that healthier standpoint. So certainly when we talk to Waitrose and we have a good relationship with them and, and they talk about, right, you're know, a health version brand. And so that, you know that's a good sort of uh, pillar for them and it, it's good, works well for us. Yeah, it's a shopper needs state and you're slotting into their category and ticking that box for them. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it works well from from a consumer, but also if you know, if you talk about weight and Tesco's as a customer. But let's talk about kids. So, I've got three kids, right? So, my kids are just two last week, five and a half, and eleven and a half. Um, she'd kill me for not saying the extra half. So, they are all ketchup eaters. I'm not a ketchup eater. I do not like ketchup. I've never liked ketchup, but that's because my mum banned it in our house. She thought it was awful stuff. So I didn't grow up drinking it, right? Or drinking it. I'm thinking of Coke now. She also banned Coke. (laughs) But anyway, we were allowed to eat loads of other stuff, but we just weren't allowed to have those two things. But my kids sit at the table and they want ketchup and everything. And we say, no, this isn't a ketchup dinner. This is a ketchup dinner. So they can have the ketchup. And they do the first squeeze and then they'll have like half the sausage of the first squeeze. And then they'll say, come on, can I have some more ketchup? And we go, ah, and we go, okay, just one more, just one more squeeze. And they'll do a second squeeze. What are we talking about in terms of each of those big blobs on the plate? What are we talking about in terms of how bad is that for my kids? You know, your kids are in a range of ages, but what the the recommended daily amount of sugar changes as we get older. But, you know, in sort of a good few splodges of normal ketchup, a three-year-old could could get their whole daily allowance of, of sugar from ketchup. So then that's on top of whatever else they might have had that day of sugar. Even like fruit juice, right? Even fruit juice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything has has, has sugar in, and, and and there's a lot of confusion around between uh, refined sugar and unrefined sugar. And at, at the end of the day, it, it's it's all sugar. It's just how it gets broken down along the way. So you're much better off having a an unrefined sugar, and your body actually has to do some of the breaking down. Because one of the reasons that you you want that really sugary ketchup every time is because it rewards you, your reward centers in your brain. You're like, oh, that, that tastes amazing. I'll eat loads of that. And then you're like, bang, big sugar high. Oh, it's dropped again. I'll have some more. And you just keep having more and more. Uh, and, and not to get too boring scientific, but there's a paper written some time ago where mice were addicted. To, they, the, the, the scientists got some mice addicted to cocaine and then they got them addicted to refined sugar. And when they gave them the choice of the cocaine or the sugar, they went for the sugar. So that just shows the scale of how how much of a want state you have for for that refined sugar when it's there. So, and yeah, like you say, kids love it. I, I happened to be eating out, which was a real pleasure recently, and my, we didn't have any of my ketchup there, so we had normal ketchup, and, and my son was literally licking it off the plate because he'd never had it, and it was just this sort of red, gloopy, sugary goodness. So, they were sort of terrifying. God, I know. So, what's your vision then, you guys? Do you want to be getting all families in the UK growing up on Dr. Will's or something healthy like Dr. Will's rather than on the alternatives, the traditional alternatives in the category? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, something you've said that's really important as well is the sort of growing up on because it's almost like once you've had that first taste, our ketchup certainly does taste a bit different to Heinz because it's made differently. But I think if, if when I go back and if I end up ever having any Heinz now, I just think, oh my gosh, that is so sweet. It tastes like a confectionery rather than a condiment. And 
so for us, vision is to be anywhere there's a bottle of Heinz at the minute, we want that to be a bottle of Dr. Wills instead. Uh, anywhere there's a, a jar of Hellman's Mayo, we want that to be a jar of Dr. Wills. And a sachet and sachets. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we can work out a sustainable way to produce them, um, then definitely. Um, but yeah, we want to be just the alternative to, to Heinz and the sensible alternative that with, with some common sense you would, you would go for. Well, what a wonderful vision and purpose and mission all in one. But also what I love about it is that from a commercial opportunity point of view, you could sit down with a pen and paper right now and work out just how big that would allow you to be. And in becoming that big business, you know, 50, 60 million or whatever it is, even bigger than 100, 200 million quid, you're actually making that much of a difference to consumption habits all over the UK and Europe, the States or whatever it is. So not only is it revenue and turnover for you guys, but it's actually consumer behaviour change in houses and in restaurants. And that's just brilliant, right? Absolutely. When, when people talk about the difference you can make, for me, when we were starting off, I was thinking, well, you know, I'll make a difference to people as a doctor. Sure, that that's kind of comes with the territory. But if, if we can change eating habits, we potentially will make a much bigger difference to a lot more people through a catch-up company, which was a sort of a bit mind-blowing to start with, but it's certainly, I mean, that, that's the aim of the whole thing. Just one thing on that. So your ketchup and your condiments, are they made with dates? Is that what you use? Yeah. So for the uh, the sauces, they're, they're sweetened uh, naturally, so they're sweetened with dates. Um, and then when you get into the other, the, the dressings and the mayonnaises, they just, we have a sort of red line of nothing that's artificial goes into them. Okay. How does the brain or the body then process the sweetness that comes from the dates or whatever it is in your products versus how it would process the sugar? Does it actually make a difference? So, as I said, at the very end of the day, sugar is sugar. Um, it's, it's still kind of, it's, it's end broken down goal is the same thing, um, but it's how it reaches that. So, it's the journey it takes to get there. So, when you've got a refined sugar, um, any of the work that the body was going to have to do to break it down, a lot of it's already been done. So it's like lazy sugar. Um, whereas something like ours, where you use dates, you um, there's the fiber from the dates that comes with it. The body takes a bit longer to break it down. So you don't get, you get the nice sweet flavor, but you don't get that big kind of sugar high and then insulin um, load after that yet. So it's more, it's more slowly and naturally broken down. That's the main aspect of it. Okay, that makes a difference. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, then please do share it on social media and take a minute or two to write a review on iTunes. It would make a big difference in allowing us to interview even more super guests with great advice that can transform how you do business. Recently, you guys have had some serious success. You have just done a big crowdfunding round, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about that, about the round itself and why you went out looking for funding and what you're going to do with it. But also how you used that on LinkedIn was amazing to drive engagement in the community on LinkedIn and why you chose LinkedIn as a place to do that. Because I've been watching and it was just, there was so much communication and noise around it. It was fabulous. It was so well done. Well, thanks, uh, firstly. Um, so we realised that if we want to grow to the to the, the level that we're that our ambitions are, you know, um, taking on Heinz, taking on the big guys in a, in a meaningful way, um, we obviously we need some money to do that. And, uh, and the speed at which we'd like to do it, we need to raise some money. So for us, crowdfunding was a fairly obvious choice because um, we're a consumer brand. So if we can get consumers, kind of consumer evangelists in our family, that works very well. So we set off with the aim 
there's various different sort of nuances to crowdfunding, but with the aim of getting to at least three quarters of a million and closed at 1.1 with just under 800 new kind of fans and members of our families. We saw that as a great success for us. The marketing to get there and the kind of the journey that we got there, a lot of thanks to our marketing team and that's uh, the girls at the Copy Club. But we wanted to galvanize as many people as possible and make as much noise as possible. And for us, LinkedIn has always seemed to work very well for that. Even as consumers, because they are people who are likely to have a higher nutritional IQ and want their families to eat the best thing. I mean, it's not just because the business aspect is actually using LinkedIn because they're consumers, potential consumers. Yeah, I, I think it's because of the people who are on there and it's quite an engaged audience. Um, I think we're, we're just too late to the party on Instagram and, and Facebook and the, the money that you have to spend to, to break through on there is huge. I think if you were doing this type of thing, I don't know, seven, eight years ago when Instagram was first started and started to get big, then, you know, amazing you've 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 struck gold but for us we always got really engaged um not following but engaged content when we were talking on linkedin and so we decided that we would use linkedin as our number one pillar for that um and and the goal for it was to just between the whole team create as much noise as possible uh using sort of word of mouth and asking friends of friends to be posting on it so it looked like it was everywhere and and it worked well it did. It did look like it was everywhere. And creating this massive kind of momentum around uh, fear of missing out. Everybody's investing in Dr. Wills and we've got even more investors and there's even more investors and only this many days left. And I'm sure that idea of losing out cognitive bias that we have as humans, you really played that to your advantage. And it's fabulous. And so now you've got your 800 investors who all I'm sure will, because they own shares in the company, will be buying Dr. Wills. Yeah, hopefully. And not only that, but sort of keeping us on the straight and narrow as well, because as soon as we we had a, a wee problem with our labels on the squeezy bottles and straight away, some of the guys who'd invest on Cedars were like, oh, I'm just letting you know because I'm an investor now, but I bought a bottle and the label was coming off, like FYI, which is, I mean, we had, we'd flagged it already, but it's really good to have people looking out for us now. And, and it's great to now see just emails coming in almost daily of, by the way, I, I, I'm an investor and I bought this for my friend for their birthday or I've done this or now every family Christmas present is going to be X, Y, and Z. So it's been really good. And I think one of the main things for us was it really pulled the team together. I mean, the last couple of years have been tough for everyone and particularly from a health standpoint, but business standpoint, personal standpoint for everyone. But having this goal of what, and it was quite a quick period. So it's like, we're going to start this and within sort of six weeks on from start to finish, which included sort of making videos and doing all the marketing. And I think as a team, because we all had something that we were talking about every single day, it really brought the team together. And that was when you've started a little company and there's a whole team who are celebrating together. It's it's kind of yeah, really heartwarming to see. That's wonderful. You mentioned squeezy bottles and I immediately thought plastic there. And I just wanted to pick up on that. We talked about this in one of our pre-calls together. And you pointed out to me just how nuanced the whole plastic bottle decision is. Can you talk our listeners through that? Because I think it's an interesting one. It's definitely an interesting one. Um, and it's something that we grappled with ourselves pretty much for the last three or four years. But eventually it came down to 95% of ketchup being bought in squeezy bottles. And our goal is to make a bigger difference to as many people as possible. 
And if that means that we move into squeezy bottles, then then that's our way of making a difference. Um, we didn't make the jump into it until we were sort of happy with or becoming happy with the sustainability of it in terms of our bottles being 100% recyclable. And the more we looked into that, glass is also good. Glass is infinitely recyclable, but it's 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 more expensive to produce. It costs it's heavier, so it costs more to ship. But there's an awareness of that you should recycle glass, which is just coming in in plastic. So I think part of the problem is that our bottles are 100% recyclable and they'll be made from recycled material. But it doesn't matter if something is recyclable unless people recycle it. So I think there's an education piece around that at the same time. But no, I think ultimately it came down to we want to compete in the biggest portion of the market in order to make the biggest difference possible. And that meant that we had to be in squeezy bottles. It's a really interesting decision, I think, and I understand that it's nuanced. I want to go back to some of the uh, something you said when we were talking about the LinkedIn marketing and you said maybe you were too late to the party with Instagram or whatever, but you've recently had some really great success on TikTok. Yeah. So, yeah, too late to the party on Instagram. But uh, about 12 months ago, I spoke to the guys in the marketing team and said, you know, what do you reckon to, to TikTok? And, and we were like, oh, it's just something kids are using to do dance videos. And I said, well, maybe not because, you know, the nurses at a hospital are, are doing videos of themselves dancing in the hospital, uh, obviously when they're on a break. But, you know, it's not just kids. It's, it's getting bigger and bigger. And, and so we, we started experimenting a bit um, with some of our own videos, uh, which a, a, a lovely girl called Louisa, who's a student up in Newcastle, with, has a finger on the pulse of what TikTok was doing. And then we, we also have a, one of our marketing pillars is, is mum chefs, uh, our sort of condiment connoisseurs. And Emily, who is our first and sort of flag-bearing condiment connoisseur mum chef, uh, made a, a video that's now had over 6 million views. So I think, I mean, I think that counts as going viral. I, I don't know in the grander scheme of TikTok, but... Yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it because I don't have TikTok because I'm afraid that my daughter will just spend all her life on it. So what is the video? Oh, so yeah, and I mean, TikTok is a black hole of uh, wild away hours, but the video is essentially uh, penne pasta onto two uh, kebab skewers painted with uh, Dr. Will's sauce and then some uh, cheese on top and then cooked as pasta sticks. And then you can sort of pull, pull the pasta off like it's a pasta kebab. It looks really good. And yeah, it's, it went wild on TikTok. So uh, we're very pleased with that. I'm going to try that. Yeah, the TikTok algorithm though is... Yeah, if anyone knows how it works, I'd love to hear from them because then the, you know the next video will get 300 views. But it's great to be there at the start of it, which we're glad to be there. Wasn't there something else, Dr. Will, about 10,000 people buying product in Tesco for you? What was that about? Uh, so that was our again a LinkedIn campaign that um, the guys at the Coffee Club came up with, uh, which was we had our Tesco launch and we wanted to show to Tesco that we could be a reasonable brand that um, people would get behind. So we did a 10,000 bottle. If we, if we could sell 10,000 bottles in the first uh, two months of being listed in Tesco's, we would then give 10,000 bottles worth of sauce to food banks up and down the country. So it went really, really well. 10,000 bottles were done in sort of super quick time, much quicker than we expected. And then we got to go out to the warehouse and sort of pallet up 10,000 bottles worth of sauce and send, uh, and we were working with Fair Share and distribute them around the country um, to food banks, which uh, felt really good. That feels really good. Is it not a risk, something like that though? Because imagine you got massive peak in rate of sale because everyone's doing that. And then afterwards, nobody's buying and Tesco's kind of going, 
okay, well, you had a big push, but it was a false push and now nobody's buying you. How did you guys balance that risk when you were thinking about doing this? So for us, brand awareness is, is, is massive. You probably just thought trial. You probably just thought if people are going to try it, they're going to love it. So just get it into their hands and the rest will take care of itself. Absolutely. So I think when you're in a brand, you think everyone's heard of your brand, but in reality, not that many people have. So it was get as many people to have heard of us as possible. If we've done our job well enough, they'll try the source and they'll they'll buy it again. And if, if we haven't and the source is rubbish, then they'll not buy it again. But the risk was there and we just wanted to get our source into as many people's hands as possible and show Tesco that when we do get people going, we, we can get we can achieve a good rate of sales. So there's something that we can aim for. So you mentioned the copy club. So you've got a quite a, a virtual team. What do, how do you call your team? An outsourced team? That, yeah, very much. So you've got an outsourced team. Some of you are full-time and some of you are outsourced. Tell us a bit about it, that, how that works. And I know that your next big objective is to drive mass awareness, isn't it? Because you've got the distribution. So how is that team going to work together to accomplish that goal? Yeah, so we're very much outsourced. And that is partly due to the pandemic. Um, we decided that people would work from home and in essence, that was excellent for us because rather than having to employ people to come into the office, we were able to employ people who weren't kind of constrained by geography at all. Josh, Liam and I come from a varied background of kind of the city medicine and sort of nightlife entrepreneurship. And to get the expertise needed for a food brand, we realized we would need to get people from out, out, out with our, our sort of area of expertise. So we found that by outsourcing, we could employ someone who was you know, a million times better than us at doing something, maybe for a bit less time than we could afford to get a graduate for. But that what that brought to the company was just astronomically better than us trying to teach a graduate how to do something that we didn't actually know how to do ourselves. So we've been incredibly lucky. Um, Lottie, who runs the coffee club, is a fabulous marketeer. And she's been with us pretty much from the start in an advisory role to start with, but then much more on board. And sh- she sits as our head of marketing. We don't have all her time. Uh, it's spread between the other people, but we have enough of it that she can then distill what she wants to be done to other people within the coffee club who work with us full time. And then from a sales point of view, we also realized that without building up an amazing black book, it was going to be very difficult to make the progress that we wanted to. So Laura Davis and her team have 20 years more between them, probably 20 years each of experience of working in in the, the grocery field. So she has the telephone numbers of the people that we just would never get a telephone number of. And again, knows how to knows how to do it far better than we do. So what we gain by having an outsourced team is just uh, just far and away better than what we could gain by having a, a core team of us sitting in an office. And what about supply chain? So actually, Liam runs or had done until very recently run that, but then that's now gone to a company called Young Foodies, who we've been aware of and, and working with for a long time. And Thea, who is one of the founders of that, is someone that we've probably met about a month or two into even starting Dr. Will. So we've we've known her for a long time and they've they've supported us very well. So they now look after the sort of demand planning and, and supply chain part of it. So really is outsourced. That's like a fabulous case study because I've never met a company that actually outsources to that extent. So a lot of it stems from when when I was when we first started, I had a, a chat to William, I can't remember his surname, who who started Corston Press and green and blacks and and he said oh look um, the way we're going to do course and press is is entirely outsourced and i think that's a much better way of doing it and, and i thought well he's been pretty successful so far he, he must know what he's talking about so we thought we'd try and emulate them and 
it's working very well for us at the minute. The other added advantage is that you're not then also left trying to work out HR issues. And again, not something that we had any experience of, but you, you, you remove that whole kind of aspect of headache, whether it be pensions or payroll or, or national insurance, and things, um, which, which again, when there's only three of us who work full time on the company, any time spent not doing bits and pieces like that is, is time that we can be on the business rather than in the business. And that's good for us. I wonder what stage a business needs to be at when they start needing four walls and people who see each other every day. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm sure there is a point in growth where all of a sudden things are just too big to be left to people who aren't full time on it. And um, it'll be an interesting one to see. Yeah, no, I think so too. And maybe uh, I can come and talk to you about that in a couple of years and see see what's happened. That would be great. Because I, I think that we've also had those same discussions and I think that there is there, there has to be something to come from the community aspect and, and the, the general chat that you might have in an office that you just can't have. Totally. Plus people being full time on something with their brains only on one thing. Listen, it's absolutely wonderful to meet you. Congratulations to you and your co-founders and to the Copy Club and everybody who's helped you along the way or who's been involved along the way. You're doing an amazing job. Um, come back and talk to us in a year or two when you're conquering the rest of the condiments aisle and I hope in in a lot more houses. Have you any idea what your household penetration is yet? I'm sure it's very small still. Oh, yeah. Compared to where we want to be, tiny. I know, I know that our sort of unprompted brand awareness is, is sort of sitting at around 11% and we're, we're trying to push that up to at least 14, 15. And that's kind of the next goal. And, and that's what we're really trying to drive at the minute. It's just awareness. Well, listen, the very best of luck. I hope you get an app today as well as all of your meetings done. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Brilliant. Thanks and we'll will. will.